The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it's a curiosity of literature that some of our greatest examples of it, like Homer and Plato, had publishing circumstances so far from our current conception that we struggle to catch up. It's much easier to imagine a Homer sitting down and crafting the lines of the Iliad and the Odyssey than it is to get our minds around an oral tradition. Forming the work over time, with bits added here and there, edges smoothed, flourishes inserted, stray lines dropped, until the text becomes preserved even before it's actually text. So too with Shakespeare, while we know he's not availing himself of a computer or a typewriter or even a ballpoint pen, it's still tempting to imagine him writing his words with his quill, dropping the parchment off with a grateful publisher, and letting the magic happen. With perfect lines and stage directions printed in tidy format and ready for the players to play. But of course, it wasn't so. Shakespeare wrote the lines for the actors, but who wrote them down for us? An actor, an audience member, a rival, a thief? We don't have just one copy of the plays. We sometimes have several, as pirated editions made their way across England and from there to the rest of the world, sometimes as curiosities, sometimes as near approximations, and sometimes with dramatic changes. One of those variants is called Bad Hamlet. We talked to a theatrical scholar, Isaac Butler, who also has written about method acting, which I couldn't resist talking to him about. Method acting holds such a power over us as we gaze up at the screen or down at the stage, admiring the faces and emotions of those who deliver our stories to us. And yet... It's not something I fully understand, though I suspect I'm like most in thinking I understand it better than I actually do. Isaac will help us sort through that and will help us figure out what to make of Bad Hamlet today on The History of Literature. go. This is a fun one today. Time to do a little time traveling to the world of Chekhov and Stanislavski and all of his heirs, and to the world of Shakespeare and Hamlet and all of those heirs too. And by heirs in that sense, I mean the copies of Hamlet that were floating around before Shakespeare and or his publisher rushed in to try to get an official version in print. Happy October, everyone. I hope you're doing well. Things for me are cracking along. Lots of traveling for me this month, which, of course, makes things a little hectic. As you know, I dropped off one child in college. Did I tell you that? Yes, he's on his way. But the other one still has a full schedule, and I am still podcasting like a maniac in addition to the day job and whatever else I can muster up by way of being a good son and a halfway decent husband and a generally okay citizen of this planet. A Weltburger, as I used to say, echoing Goethe. And yes, I know we promised an episode on Goethe a long time ago. Have patience, my dear lovers of all things German, or maybe I should say of many things German. <laughs> There's one thing I hope... You don't love? Maybe you're a lover of some things German, or one thing German, just Goethe, who knows? Maybe for you, 
it's Goethe or bust. And for the rest, you can go blow in my shoe, as my Swiss grandmother used to say, right before she whipped me in Scrabble. So Isaac Butler is here. I think I've given you all the intro we need for Bad Hamlet. We'll have a bit more in our discussion with Isaac. So let's get straight to it. His book is called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, which has an incredible blurb, which I won't spoil for you yet. I'll just tell you it's a great blurb. I guess I've just blurbed the blurb, so to speak. (laughs) Look, there are people who write books like Isaac Butler. There are people who blurb the books like this particular celebrity. And then there are people like me who are reduced to blurbing the blurb. Standing on the outside like a hungry and eager parasite. Here's another quote. Delicious, humane, and probing, says Vulture of the uh, Isaac Butler book. The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. That's a good recommendation, too. Delicious, humane, and probing. We like all three of those things here at the History of Literature, and I'm sure you do as well. Isaac Butler, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Isaac Butler, who is the author or co-author of numerous books about the theater, including The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act which Nathan Lane called, quote, the best and most important book about acting I've ever read, end quote. Pretty amazing. He has also been the creator and host of Lend Me Your Ears, a podcast about Shakespeare and politics. He joins us today to talk about acting, the theater, and the play known as Bad Hamlet. Isaac Butler, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. So let's save Bad Hamlet for now and start with you in the theater. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C., um, northwest D.C., nearby Carter Barron. Mm. And when did, when and how, I guess, did the theater become part of your life? 
Oh, that that's actually a tough question to answer because that requires me to remember a time when theater was not part mm. of my life. My parents mm-hmm. were very into the arts. They still are. You know, oh. whenever they come up to New York, they see two plays and go to like three museums a day or whatever. Yeah, um, and yeah. I, th- you know, that was the kind of family I grew up in. And uh, DC actually has a really great theater scene it always has it's very dense there's a lot of theater companies they do really interesting work and so i grew up going to see theater all the time first it was kids theater for those of you who are dc natives at glen echo park seeing children's Mm. theater and then seeing theater at the shakespeare theater and the studio and the source which doesn't exist anymore and uh woolly mammoth i mean i had subscriptions to all of those theaters as a high schooler and i was also a child actor in the dc theater scene mostly at the studio theater oh wow okay so shakespeare can you remember your earliest encounters with shakespeare or is that part of the blur as well well the first play I saw at the Shakespeare Theater, which was the first professional play for adults I saw, was actually a George Bernard Shaw play. It was uh, St. Joan. Um, And uh I actually remember, weirdly, I remember images from that production very well 35 years later. But I don't remember which Shakespeare play I saw first. I remember the ones I was in, you know, very vividly. I was in like three different productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and I was in Romeo and Juliet. And then in college, I was in Hamlet and a couple of others and but you know we subscribe to the Shakespeare Theater in DC so I saw three to four Shakespeare plays a year there and so I was kind of a Shakespeare nut as a kid I took this really wonderful Shakespeare literature class in high school with this great teacher who's since passed away the named uh, Gary McCown and my grandmother had studied Shakespeare for her master's degree I believe and so she would always go to the plays too and we would talk about them and I actually inherited her editions of the plays that she read in school yeah wow okay that's pretty deeply rooted in your family yeah yeah some of them have like mimeographed notes in them and it's, it's really wild Mm. Okay, well, let's jump ahead a little bit. I'm really interested in talking to you about the method. And I think everyone is familiar with the term, but as you write, we kind of think we know what it means, but it's often misunderstood. So yeah, totally. Maybe I'll start with that. How do you think the public understands method acting? And, And then let's talk about what it is really. Sure. Well, the methods had a lot of different associations in the public eye since it became kind of well-known in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And the misunderstandings start immediately. For example, people think the kind of first and and greatest method actor is is Marlon Brando, right? We're very familiar with that kind of performance style. But while Marlon Brando was a really influential actor and a true genius. He's not really a method actor because what it means to be a method actor is to study the theories and teachings and ideas of Lee Strasberg. Hmm. And Lee Strasberg is one of several teachers in the mid 20th century who are adapting the ideas of this Russian director and actor named Konstantin Stanislavsky, who developed this thing called the system, which is a way of, training and thinking about the exterior and internal mechanisms of acting and how they work together to create a role. And it's hugely influential in the United States. It's influenced 
actually sort of can't be <laughs> exaggerated. It's so huge. And there's a bunch of different teachers who spring up who are all rivals with one another. Lee Strasberg becomes the most famous of them. And so Marlon Brando worked with Lee Strasberg a little bit, but he didn't like Lee Strasberg personally. He didn't like him professionally. He didn't like his teachings. And he actually studied with Lee Strasberg's main rival, this woman, Stella Adler, who called what she taught modern acting. Mm. Um, so there's all immediately confusion, right? So to the public... In the 1950s, it really just means like, oh, you studied some very charismatic American teacher who teaches an adaptation of Stanislavski, and that's all kind of the method. But that's not really true. It's it's always been what Lee Strasberg taught. And its most famous technique or infamous technique is something called the effective memory exercise. And that's Mm. where you use the sensory details of a memory that has a strong emotion attached to it in order to trigger that emotion. The smell of the bread your mother was making when your father abandoned your family, you know, or something Mm -hmm. like that. And so you don't have to think of it. You train eventually so you don't have to think about that whole memory you just think like smell of bread got it and then you've got that feeling Mm. lots of people disliked this technique they thought it was trauma pornography they thought it was practicing therapy without a license but lots of other people blossomed under it and under his other instruction that's not all there is to the method that's just the most famous part that's not what we think about as the method today what we think about when we think about the method is what daniel day lewis did or what jeremy strong does or whatever where you try to kind of live within the imagined reality of the character to the greatest extent possible you wear their clothes all the time you learn their physical habits you might you know daniel day lewis built his own house for the crucible or something like that (laughs) you never break character when you're on set if your character's supposed to be drunk maybe you'll have a beer before you go on things like that and actually Strasberg was completely opposed to that he thought that was bad he thought that was a bad technique and that it was unhealthy and that actors shouldn't do it so the public idea of what the method is is almost the polar opposite of what practitioners and teachers of the method would tell you the method is right okay so for a an actor like uh, Lawrence Olivier let's say If he was in a scene and it was called for him to cry, would he be digging into memories of sad events or would he just have a technique that would basically say, uh, turn on tears now? (laughs) No, he definitely wouldn't. He would definitely be something akin to the... The latter, although I'm trying to remember how often I've seen Lawrence Olivier actually cry, like tears actually come out of his (laughs) eyes on camera, and I'm having trouble remembering, although I'm sure I haven't seen all of his movies, so I'm sure there's one where he does. But no, you would use other techniques. He was a very external technical Mm -hmm. actor who used a lot of prosthetics and a lot of makeup he would approach the text like a piece of music he's really part of the kind of old guard of classical british technique and you know ever since the method came around there's been a lot of hostility between the method americans and the classically trained brits that continues to this day even though olivier's dead lee strasberg's dead it's sort of weird to continue fighting this now yeah, yeah. And usually I would say people value method acting more and kind of view that as more artistic or or going deeper for your art. But there's that famous anecdote of Lawrence Olivier, Dustin Hoffman. I'm sure you've heard it a million times about when Dustin Hoffman ran around the block in order to play the, 
the guy who was out of breath. And uh, Laurence Olivier said, my dear boy, have you ever thought of acting? I think that anecdote is really popular because it speaks to some anxieties we have about really these kind of really intense processes. But the truth behind the anecdote, at least to hear Dustin Hoffman tell it, is that actually it was like a very affectionate conversation Mm. between the two of them Mm -hmm. and they were very they were very close and he loved uh olivier very much and it was the sort of it had more to do with the divorce that dustin hoffman was going through than it did the scene they were about to shoot Mm -hmm. and that basically what olivier was telling him was just to take care of himself right now stanislavski uh, my understanding of kind of what he did was break the theater free from the the mannerisms or the gesticulations or kind of a code of you know you're angry and you shake your fist or you you yes, you do yeah. things that are kind of you're kind of playing to the back row we might say or you're you're acting in a kind of broad way and and when we see early films the earliest black and white films the the characters look very comical to us because the villains are twirling their mustaches and so on but it seems like uh, film, especially with the the close up of the the camera on the face, could really benefit from what Stanislavski liberated acting from. Yes, that's true. When Stanislavski began, he had been a successful actor for quite a while before he started working on the system. So when he began, though, he was very interested in liberating acting from the conventions of the stage. There was a convention for how you read certain lines. There was a convention for how you displayed sorrow or anger or love or pity or any of those things. And he called all of that hokum. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He wanted nothing to do with it. It was just a bag of tricks. It didn't mean anything. And so even before he was investigating the kind of internal mechanism of acting, he was thinking about how do we treat each character as an individual character? How do you discover the way the character would express pity, not the way pity is supposed to be expressed on the stage? That was his sort of first revolution. Then, and that's all happening kind of the late 19th century. Then in the early 20th century, uh, 1906 mainly, he, he has this problem because he just kind of delivers a mediocre performance one day. You know, he's like going through the motions of the character and he doesn't feel anything. I think for most of us, it's like, yeah, you had a bad day. Who cares? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But um, Stanislavski was a relentless perfectionist and he wanted to create a way that actors could always be inspired, that they could be inspired on demand and that they could experience their roles, that they could achieve this thing called perjivania or experiencing, which is when you and the character are kind of in sync with one another, kind of thinking the same things, feeling the same things. Mm. He started working on it in 1906 and that was the major project for the rest of his life. He died in the late 1930s and he was constantly developing techniques and throwing them out and revising them and thinking of them. And that's really the second revolution he led because he was really the first one to treat the internal mechanism of acting as something that could be trained mm. and as something that a sophisticated actor could use at their command. Because before it was sort of like, oh, all that's talent and it's mysterious. Yeah. And he's like, yes, it, it is to some extent talent and it is mysterious and we're going to go out and crack that mystery. Yeah, right. And he also had this sort of synergistic relationship with the plays of Chekhov, which they seem to have been written in a way that he could sort of sink his teeth into and vice versa, that he was promoting an acting style that was perfect for those plays. And I'm curious if the method or what we understand to be the method, or if we want to call it something broader than that, if you think that also had an effect on 
the films that we saw coming out of like the 1970s, for example, were the studios and the was it just an accident that we saw this flourishing of films that had such strong characters and such no. um yeah so it, it yeah i don't i don't think it was an accident at all yeah many had studied with strasberg or one of his rivals the main ones of whom were stella adler uda hagen sanford meisner and bobby lewis they had studied with them and they were bringing those ideas into the films a lot of those folks also trained directors and writers Sidney yeah. lumet was one of the original classmates at the actor studio just to give an example obviously Kazan was in the group theater and had brought yeah. all of that into the training that he did of other directors. Martin Ritt, who directed HUD and Norma Ray and all sorts of other wonderful movies came out of there too. Mike Nichols was trained by Lee Strasberg. Part of it's just that. Part of it's just the people who are breaking through all come from this background, or many of them do. Most of them do. By the time you get to 1979, nine of the 10 nominees for best actor are members of the actor studio mm, wow and then what the other thing that's happening is as those actors particularly the actors become stars they have a lot more power to shape their projects right. they are the ones optioning the scripts they're the ones setting up the films they're the ones hiring the directors so alice doesn't live here anymore wonderful film starring ellen burston that film was her idea and she was the one who hired martin scorsese to direct it and ellen burston is one of the most important method actors of the 20th century and probably the the most important living one that like i said is part of it the other thing though is that i do think that these various techniques of a kind of american stanislavski technique that'll be the umbrella term i use right yeah. american stanislavski technique with its emphasis on subtext with its emphasis on what are called the given circumstances which is the social and political and geographic reality that surrounds the character with its emphasis on the truth and getting to the truth I just think in the Watergate era, we were really primed to get some truth, mm. you know, like we were just being lied to so much over the course of the Vietnam War and then over the course of the Nixon administration that we were hungry for a kind of truth. And that is what those actors and directors and writers had to offer us. Mm. Okay, and you mentioned the marquee names. A lot of them I was expecting, Marlon Brando, Marilyn Monroe, and and so on, Ellen Burstyn, Dustin Hoffman. You also mentioned James Baldwin, and yeah. how does he fit in? Baldwin joins the Actor Studio Writers Unit. He was a very devoted part of its social scene because the Actor Studio was also a social club in some ways. These people were mm. all friends with each other. A lot of them were sleeping with one another, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and so yeah. forth. And Baldwin was part of that scene. He was part of the Writers Unit. He was friends with Kazan. He was friends with Rip Torn. He was friends with Marlon Brando. He had actually been friends with Marlon Brando since before the Actor Studio was founded. Mm. And he was interested in playwriting. He wrote a couple plays and and one of them is this play Blues for Mr. Charlie. And Blues for Mr. Charlie is this really wild. I think it's a great play. I think people should read it. It's it's complicated. It's not fully successful, but it's a really fascinating, difficult bold theatrical work that he wrote in response to the Emmett Till lynching. Mm -hmm. And Kazan actually 
asked him to. He said, I think you should write something in response to Emmett Till. And after the lynching of Emmett Till and then the murder of Medgar Evers, who Baldwin was friends with, he really dug down real deep into himself and he wrote this play. And the actor studio actually produced the premiere of it. It was actually originally done by the actor studio. Uh, this is a funny bit of trivia. Directed by Burgess Meredith, who your oh, listeners wow. probably best know <laughs> as penguin. the Penguin from the yeah. Batman TV show, but he was actually <laughs> one of the most respected figures in New York theater at that time. Right. And Baldwin, I understand he had some criticism of method acting. Yeah, I mean, eventually he grew to really hate Lee Strasberg and to hate the actor's studio. He, uh, among other things, you know, there weren't that many black people at the studio. Most of the black cast, which is most of the cast, had to be hired outside. And when the play went to London, the production in New York was very well received. When it toured to London, it was not successful. And Strasberg kind of blamed the non-studio members of the actor acting company for it, which is to say the black members of the acting company. Baldwin was really furious about some of the stuff he felt they were getting wrong in rehearsals. There's one rehearsal where he got up on a ladder to just yell at the cast, to yell at the actor studio members about how they were kind of all up their own ass and weren't doing the text right. Mm. And he actually eventually, in a novel called Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone, it's a late novel, it's very long, it's, it's messier than his kind of earlier work, he writes a parody of the actor studio in to that book one of the characters becomes a member of the actors means workshop i think it's called the guy who runs it is a very thinly veiled i mean he's barely trying to hide it parody of lee strasberg hmm. has the method basically conquered everything is it now as as common as this is just how you prepare to act or is it still a method that people train in and, and learn and either accept or reject you know, it's really wild. It was so dominant that it kind of trickled down into the groundwater of American acting. Mm -hmm. So even though a lot of people probably are not going out and actually taking method acting classes and learning. There's a line of exercises, a specific series of exercises that you learn when you become a method actor. Like not everyone's going out and doing that, for example, but a lot of its core assumptions are still with us. I think basically the way that you're taught to read a play or a film script and break it down and figure out how to act it you know all of that comes from Stanislavski the, we're never going to escape that at least not here in the United States and I do think many of its assumptions about the value of truth and the value of vulnerability the value of what's called public solitude which is the idea of performing as if you are not being observed and that we want some feeling of realness even if we're watching something experimental or abstract all of those values are still with us and are still our values so even though the technique is not as well known anymore, not as broadly taught, not as well respected, frankly. I think the core values and ideas are still very important. Yeah. Okay. So I want to roll out this theory I have about Shakespeare with you. And I might be using the term wrong because I was using kind of the the generic public understanding uh, version of the term method for acting. But I have always tried to figure out just how Shakespeare did what he did. And oh, yeah, it's really it's really astounding. Right. You know, two yeah. plays a year for his career. And, you know, so many of them are masterpieces one after another. I mean, it's mind boggling. 
Yeah. And I had this idea that in addition to his complete fluidity with the English language is, is that he was basically sitting down and inhabiting the minds and psychology of different characters whenever he needed to. So he could, he could be the king to write the lines of the king, and then he could be, the in his mind, the gravedigger to write the, the lines right. there, and he'd keep everyone's motives separately, you know, in his mind separately, and he'd keep their, their way of talking separately and all of that. And I, I thought of it as being like a method writer, that he was, he, <laughs> he was basically... Yeah. And then, of course, I thought, well, of course, he was an actor as well, and so maybe this was familiar to him when he was playing out roles and so on. And he was able to just kind of don the mask, so to speak, of whatever character he needed to, just as he may have jumped into a, a play and played that the part that was needed to be played that night right. or, or so on. Does that resonate with you at all? Am I abusing the term method to call him a method writer? Strasberg and Stanislavski would love that you said that because their whole thing was, oh, I'm not inventing anything. I'm just taking what good actors already did and uh, then like yeah. codifying it into an exercise or whatever. And I always felt like you you guys, to quote Hamlet, doth protest too much. Like, come on. Some of this <laughs> some of this you're inventing. But I think you're on to something in that he could inhabit lots of different parts of the human condition and he clearly had a prodigious imagination. I think there's another thing going on there that's important i have limited proof of so take yeah. this with a grain of salt i think the other thing is that he had a fixed company of actors mm. you know the lord chamberlain's men and later the king's men they're a joint stock company so there's a lot of members who yeah. are staying year to year and they're they're shareholders in the company and they're part of it and so if he's going to write a role for someone he knows what they can and can't do what the sound of their voice is going to be like how they think how they move and he's kind of adapting the roles uh, which mo many of which came from plays and stories that already existed don't forget and he's kind of adapting them to the company some people take it further and feel that maybe he's having the actors improvise the scenes mm. and then mm -hmm. writing down what they do and then shaping that into actual poetry you know maybe the first draft is improvisation we really don't know what we can say is that lots of plays throughout time have been in fact made that way and it's a very useful way if you want to be really prolific it's a very useful way of developing plays and so that that might have been what what he did i think there's a way in which even though his name is on all of the plays in some ways the achievement is the company he built mm. Yeah, I kind of love that. It's it's almost like Christopher Guest, who's sort of saying, uh, "Sure, well, I've got Eugene Levy, I've got Fred Willard, I've got Catherine O'Hara. I know what these people can do. I just need to put them in the right scenario and let them cook, and then maybe the to become the Shakespeare, you would then take what they had done and and done so excellently, and then turn it into the kind of language that Shakespeare yeah. could provide for it or something. But but the idea that you're not just starting out alone with all of these individual characters in your mind, but you have real life people who are helping to contribute to the process that would be uh, someday when they uh, discover that, you know, when we look at the security footage from the Globe Theater, we'll know exactly yeah, how exactly. they did all this. <laughs>
Exactly. Well, you know, I mean, one of the English language playwrights who has come the closest in, in within my lifetime to what Shakespeare is able to achieve is Carol Churchill when she was working with Joint Stock, um, mm. who's probably the greatest living writer in the English language. And Carol Churchill, she was writing these masterpieces, you know, she was writing one every year to 18 months, and they're incredible plays. And, and the reason why she did was able to do that was that she had a whole cast at her disposal to research, to interview people, to do improvisation exercises and so that's why I think there's something to that idea is that we actually have evidence of what a great impact that kind of process can have on a brilliant brilliant writer mm. okay let's take a quick break and then come back with our questions about bad Hamlet Okay, we're back with Isaac Butler. Let's turn now to a different topic. I understand that you are, I'm not sure what the right word is here, an aficionado perhaps of the play or the version of the play known as Bad Hamlet. I don't know that I'm exactly an aficionado, I should say. I mean, I find the Bad Hamlet fascinating, but it's not like I'm going to go direct it. (laughs) Okay, what is Bad Hamlet? So Bad Hamlet is the name we give to the first quarto version of Hamlet. Now, Mm. let's just unpack what I just said for a second, right? During Shakespeare's life, many, not all, but many of his plays are published in the quarto format. And it's Mm -hmm. called a quarto because basically what you do is you take a really big piece of paper and you print four pages on one side and four pages on the other side. So you get eight leaves and then you fold it. And then there you've got eight pages of an eventual book right Mm -hmm. so those are quarters you're folding it in quarters that's where the name comes from um after his death shakespeare's plays get published in a collected edition so the quartos are one-offs and this is like an anthology edition called the folio and it's called the folio because you are taking those big pieces of paper and you're folding them folio once Mm. right so it's much larger and you get two you know sheets per big page um folios are much larger they're much nicer and you're meant to keep them around but that's not what quartos were for Quartos were cheap. They're they're like halfway between a pamphlet and a dime store paperback. You mm-hmm. know, you're gonna you're gonna read it. You're going to loan it to a friend. They're going to read it. It's going to fall apart. It's going to disintegrate. They're not made to last. And as a result, not that many of them survive. Not that many copies of them survive. But one that does survive is the first quarto of Hamlet, which was actually discovered after the second quarto of Hamlet. It's just that it was printed first by a year. Hmm. And it's the earliest printed version of Hamlet. It's published in 1603. And it's both very different and much worse than the Hamlet that you'd probably know and love. Yeah. And I was reading that there's some speculation that maybe these quartos of Hamlet were printed out for traveling companies or for different theater companies in different places and and were meant to be used and maybe had a kind of, uh, I don't know, a sort of rough and ready quality to it where people were adapting plays for particular situations, for example. Yeah, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that what a script is, what an author is, what a playwright Mm. is, I mean, all of these things are very different during that era. Yeah. Shakespeare himself is almost certainly rewriting these plays when they do them at different theaters. You're going to do it at court. You might rewrite the play to have more jokes about court politics or something. 
and these plays are in repertory. So they're being performed multiple times a year. They're being performed multiple years in a row. So they're probably being rewritten then too. And so the idea that a play has a fixed text that never changes is a fairly modern idea of how playwriting works. And that's not how playwriting worked in Shakespeare's day. And this first quarto might have been put together from memory, maybe by an actor, or maybe it was pirated by an audience member or something like that. Yeah, it's not an official version. And one of the reasons why we know that is it doesn't say it's an official version. I think if if I recall correctly, it's not even entered in like the registry of published things that year. So it may be like completely pirated. I mean, it was printed, but you know, it's, it's less official. The second quarto actually says the tragedy. Magical History of Hamlet, Prince of Denmark by William Shakespeare, newly imprinted and enlarged to almost as again as it was, which is a reference to the fact that the first quarter, the bad Hamlet, is half as long, according to the true and perfect copy. So it even says right there on the title page, right? Yeah. This is the real thing. It's twice as long as that BS you were reading before, and it's actually taken from the Shakespeare's text of the play. That's what that is sort of announcing on the title page. Now, we don't really know what the cause is or what the source text of the bad Hamlet is. One theory is it's a bootleg. You know, it's like, a, you know, that Seinfeld right. episode where Kramer is bootlegging movies with the V with yeah, the yeah, camcorder yeah. in yeah. the movie theater. You know, it's uh, it, maybe it's like that. You know, maybe someone just went and saw it and wrote down what they remembered. However, some of the lines of some of the minor characters, uh, Marcellus, Voltamond and Lucianus, who all could have been played by the same actor because they're, they're small characters characters and they could have just doubled them all of those lines are pretty close to what they are in the other versions so there's some theory that it's like that actor is trying to remember the rest of the play and then he puts down the rest of the play right um maybe it's some combo between those two and the most tantalizing idea is that it's actually an early draft of the play by Mm. shakespeare and someone took it and published it and that maybe it was even performed and this is tantalizing of course because it would give us a line into Shakespeare's writing process. You yeah. Know, it, wouldn't it be great to know that Shakespeare wrote shitty first drafts? Yeah. And then he went back and fixed them. I mean, that's very comforting, I think. Yeah. Sort of regardless of whether it was Shakespeare improving himself or it was somebody else who was trying to do Shakespeare and not quite getting it right, it does help us to see the actual play in relief, so to speak. <laughs> yes. So yeah, what totally. this is where it gets kind of fun. What differences do we see? Which ones jump out to you as mattering the most? Well, it's half as long. That's right. a big thing. Right. And and important events and scenes happen in different places. Gertrude is a is a somewhat different character. Gertrude actually kind of promises to avenge her dead husband at one point in the play to Hamlet. Yeah. Um the characters have different names and also like the key speeches are really different. So I'm going I'm going to read a little bit to you if that's if that's you Yeah, know, that'd be uh, great. Interesting. So What's the most famous speech, not only in this play, but the history of the English language? It's got to be to be or not to be, right? I mean, some of your audience is probably going to recite along with me when I say, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. Some of the most famous lines ever written. Yes. So that appears in Act 3, Scene 1 of Shakespeare's Hamlet from the second quarto on. In the bad Hamlet, it appears in the second act. 
And it goes like this. Those famous opening lines now go, to be or not to be, I, there's the point. To die, to sleep, <laughs> is that all? I all know to sleep, to dream, I marry, there it goes. For in that dream of death, when we awake and born before an everlasting judge, from whence no passenger ever returned, the undiscovered country at whose sight the happy smile and the accursed damned. So <laughs> it's really different. It's much clumsier. The ideas are in the wrong order. Yeah. The, the phrase, the undiscovered country is in the wrong place. It's missing key points. But the other thing about the Bad Hamlet that's different, and this is actually a good thing that it exists, exists i guess is it has a lot more stage directions in it oh and so those give us maybe some clue as to how the play was originally performed so for example when ophelia enters for her mad scene the play describes her as playing on a lute with her hair down singing Right. Or in the um, scene after Ophelia dies, it explicitly says that Laertes climbs into Ophelia's grave before Hamlet and then Hamlet goes into it. So it gives us a rare glimpse into the staging because Shakespeare almost never includes any stage direction beyond entrance and exits yeah. in his plays. Yeah. Well, one thing, though, that is kind of in the uh, the comical variety is the ghost who appears in battle dress when Hamlet and Gertrude are talking in her bedroom. In the first quarto, it has enter the ghost in his nightgown as if right, the ghost yes. is kind of politely changing clothes to, to suit the moment for the. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like it's like Scrooge McDuck in the Disney <laughs> uh, Christmas Carol is how I imagine it. <laughs> I would love the idea. I mean, one of the things I love about To Be or Not To Be is not only is it kind of this perfect speech, but it's perfectly placed. Act three, scene one. Yeah. It's like the pivot of the whole play. I kind of am hoping to hear that act three, scene one instead in Bad Hamlet is a soliloquy by Marcellus <laughs> or one of the characters. <laughs> and, and it's actually the actor who's imagining himself as being the most important character in the play of Hamlet. Yeah, exactly. It would be really funny if all of the uh, if they just Marcellus <laughs> had this really, really big role. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, the quartos were often published without the act breaks. Hmm. Um, we just kind of know from context that that's act two when the when the to be or not to be speech happens. So who knows? Who knows? Um, I also think probably because I played Polonius in college, the fact that for some reason his name is Corambus. In uh, this, in yeah. the Bad Hamlet, I think it's very weird. It's like, why'd you call him Carambus and then call him Polonius? Or was it, you know, poor, uh, that poor minor actor being like, God, who did Jerry play again? <laughs> what was his name? It had a, it ended in an us sound. I know, Carambus. I mean, like, where does that even come from? Yeah, well, I read a theory that these were variants that were performed around England is that a couple of the names that were changed were names of dignitaries in Oxford or something. Mm. And so they yeah, sort of... that makes sense. Yeah, they changed it away from that so it either wouldn't be distracting or offensive. Right. So this is like a unlicensed non-equity tour today. Yeah. <laughs> so let's bring this full circle with our discussion of the method we were talking about before. We kind of have this idea that the playwright has the final word and all performances right. should reflect that. And But given how emergency First actors are in their characters, you could ask, well, why not let these variants loose? It might be kind of exciting to go to a performance and see characters who are bringing different motivations or different interactions between characters and, and different versions of a play. It could be exciting to not know exactly what you're going to get when you go to the theater. That's true. I mean, one of the interesting things about 
Hamlet. And it's not the only Shakespeare play for which this is true, but one of the, but it's really true for Hamlet is there is no definitive version of the text. Mm, You know, mm -hmm. every time you read Hamlet, every time you see Hamlet, an editor or a director or a dramaturg or whoever has cobbled together the version that they want to do out of all these different alternates. It's almost like when the fans of Star Wars have have de-specialized the special editions, Mm. fans of Star Wars have gone through and re edited the original trilogy to take out everything that George Lucas changed in the special editions right? um, because those original versions are not available in like a 4K thing so they've made their own I mean we're kind of doing that that the text isn't fixed and I think that's really fascinating nowadays the idea is that the writer's text remains fixed and you don't improvise around it you don't change the lines and I think for the most part that's good and instead what changes is the directorial vision for the play right? the shading that the actor bring to it and things like that and and I think that's fine I think that's a totally fine way to go about doing it every time you do Shakespeare you know very few people are doing the full text of them and most of the time there's actual multiple texts of them so the word text is sort of not the right word in some way Mm -hmm. and then you have some small change that you know sometimes it's just tightening up and we'll make this one brisker or we'll we'll set it in nazi germany or something like that but but then sometimes you'll get these little changes like the one you had mentioned about gertrude who in in the bad hamlet agreeing to help her son and insisting she knows nothing of the murder and and being kind of a a difference there in, in the Star Wars example, you know, whether Han Solo drew his gun first or whether he was uh, acting in Which self-defense. Which, of course, he did. He's a, No, no, he's a lovable <laughs> rake. Of course he shot first. Right. But, you know, you could imagine that a director who's free to say, I'm going to not just work within this text, but kind of give Ophelia a different angle on this without going full bore, right. Tom Stoppard, Rosencrantz, and Guildenstern are dead, but just kind of giving you that different flavor in Hamlet. On the other hand, people would probably say, okay, who are you? We're talking William Shakespeare here. Why are you second-guessing right. his choices like that? But Shakespeare, of course, was also doing that to writers in his day. You know, uh, yeah. King Lear originally ended happily. Yeah. <laughs> and he re- he rewrote it to be a tragedy. It was not a tragedy. I mean, the audience going to see King Lear would have been, for the first time, would have been extremely shocked to find out that Lear and Cordelia lose the war and die at the end of the play. That is not what they would have expected. The problem is that Shakespeare's so fucking good that, yeah. you know, it's not like trying to rewrite right. it is a real problem. Yeah. That said, in the 18th and 19th centuries, people did rewrite his plays to make them more acceptable. Um, I think they did a version of Lear with a happy ending. There was a period of time when people were rewriting these plays, but we don't do that anymore because what are you going to do? You're going to beat Shakespeare at his own game? Come right, on. right. You're going to give notes to Shakespeare. It's like the you yeah. could imagine someone saying, well, Iago, we don't know what motivates him. Let's give him a backstory or something. And, and mm-hmm. of course, everyone would feel like, well, now you've just taken away one yeah. of the greatest things about that play. Although that's what happens in the opera Otello. The librettist for Verdi's Otello was kind of, I, I feel like he was so freaked out <laughs> by, the by idea Iago of that, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that he gives him this aria that's basically like, I worship a dark and evil God. And that's why I'm doing this. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm sure other eras would have had him the, uh, the victim of cruelty as a child, or there'd be uh, the loss of, you know, something to explain what he's doing that 
you can draw a line, but it's so much better in my mind that it, that there is no explanation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, what you going to do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we would all love to restore King Lear's happy ending, I suppose, but like, are you going to try to write it? I'm certainly not. What yeah. we have instead now are, you know, adaptations. Right. There's a, there was a novel a couple of years ago from the point of view of King Lear's wife it sounded pretty silly to me but it exists there's Mm -hmm. many many adaptations of the tempest in particular a lot of post-colonial writers have done their own version of the tempest whether as a play or as a novel so that's the way we're doing it now as we're writing our own responses to this work and i and i think that's healthy and good Mm. yeah and if you think of the alternative of being well let's just have this word for word the same exact way with the same exact characters and costumes and and stage scenery and all of that for the last uh, 400 plus years you'd think let's let's breathe some life into it yes i i totally agree but i do think on stage anyway the way to breathe that life into it is through directorial invention and you Mm. know actorly brilliance not uh, I mean, we shouldn't be doing it in, you know, doublet and hose all the time. That would be really boring. But I don't think the way to do it is to to radically change the text of the play itself. Right, right. Well, the book is called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. The author is Isaac Butler. Isaac, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. This was great fun. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Does that make you want to act? Take some acting classes or maybe write a play or read Hamlet or maybe check out the book The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. All are highly recommended objects and endeavors. It makes me, at a minimum, want to thank the book's author, Isaac Butler, for joining me today. And to thank you, dear listener, for completing this equation. It's like those circuits that don't spark unless they're complete and you are part of it. Necessary. We can't do any shocking without you. (laughs) Speaking of shocking, I'm still here doing this. They haven't fired me yet. To the astonishment of millions. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.